Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, when, I did, the, uh, thing, when I did the, the book about, you know, what Dylan's songs mean, sort of thing, the whole 60s things, very difficult to do that without quoting chunks. You I'm have sure, to paraphrase. Oh, you, right. you end up paraphrasing stuff and referring a you know, yeah, side yeah, long yeah, way. It's yeah. very difficult. Yeah. So are we recording, Fraser? We, we should recording. be up and running. Huh? Uh, every week when I say, are we recording, Fraser? Uh, indeed, is it rolling? Is it rolling? Oh, exactly. Hey, yeah. There it exactly is. My point. I wasn't sorry. <laughs> what goes through my mind? <laughs> sorry. What goes through my mind is the beginning of that track on Nashville skyline. Is it Andy Gill? Absolutely. I was listening uh, to what, it today. Was it to be alone with you? I thought. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So at the beginning of to be alone with you, Absolutely. you hear a bit of strumming, and then you hear Bob Dylan say, "Is it rolling, Bob?" Because Bob Johnson, the producer. See, that really confused me when I was a kid. I thought he was talking to himself. <laughs> when I was, however old I was when I came out, I didn't know what a producer was. I didn't realise they existed. I just thought you went into a room and just, you know, somehow magically it turned out in an album. Anyway, that quote has, has been used occasionally to point out that that is the pure role of a producer, is just make sure the tape's running. You yeah, know? absolutely. He's the guy to perform. That's the key You're the guy role. to just make sure it's, it's yeah. captured. Anyway, this morning, prior to this Bob Dylan 70th birthday podcast, in which we're joined by Andy Gill. Mighty Andy Gill. Hi. Mark Allen, Fraser Lurie. Uh, I was reading a little bit about, the, about uh, when Bob Johnson first took Bob Dylan to Nashville. And he said... And I've read everything I could ever get my hands on about this. And it still comes up with little things I didn't know. That apparently, according to Bob Johnson, on the console in a Nashville studio in 1966, I suppose, or 65, they used to have a switch that you put out one way or the other. And one, one way was country and the other way was pop. You just clicked it back and forth. <laughs> and it either, I don't know, put a load of top on it if it was pop or something oh, like that, brilliant. whatever he did. And anyway, the story of Is It Rolling Bob has there's a story behind it, which is... So when Dylan went country, did somebody just accidentally knock the switch? <laughs> I never realised that. And his voice completely changed. And his voice completely changed. That's what it is. But 
<laughs> no, the story of uh, when he first started recording Blonde on Blonde there, uh, Bob Johnson would be in the booth and uh, he'd be ready to start and, uh, and Bob Johnson would go, roll tape, and then he'd hear behind him. The tape machine wasn't in the, wasn't in the control room. He'd hear behind him another voice going, roll tape, and then a slightly more distant voice, roll tape, and then a voice literally down the <laughs> corridor going, roll tape. And, and, and Bob Johnson thought, this is ridiculous, you can't do it like it's this. Absurd. Because it was a sort of heavily unionised, very formal yeah. way of doing things. And then he, he, he got Bob Dylan into the studio, into the control room, and said, I'm sorry, this is, how, this is what I have to work with. Bob Dylan laughed his socks off and said, we can't go on like this. And so they moved, after great negotiation, they moved the tape machine from Lord way down Shopsworth. the corridor into the, into the control room. And so ever, after that, it was always, is it rolling, Bob? It was a bit of a joke, because normally it takes it take two minutes to warm them. to get it rolling. Yeah, and you missed half the performance. That's brilliant. Now, the question I wanted to ask you, to put to them the meeting, was, why do I find stories like that about Bob Dylan? And those records, so enduringly fascinating. You know, why, why, why do you get fascinated by that kind of thing about him in a way that you don't about, I don't know, Neil Young, Leonard I, Cohen or whatever? You, yeah. and do you want to go first? I've got a theory. But no, I, my, my, I suppose one of my theories is that he is an enduring mystery, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. Up until, um, I suppose, he wrote Chimes of Freedom... Uh, his songs were about very, uh, very concrete things. They're about they were the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll. They were the most, most of the protest songs, which he wrote to impress a girlfriend, and stopped writing when he split up with her. But he he wrote them about specific events to make specific political points. And the idea of those songs was to be as clearly understood by as many people as possible. Directly after he wrote that song. Triumph to Freedom. He also wrote Mr. Tambourine Man, both influenced by a poem he read by um, Arthur Rambo, written when Rambo was 16. He What's the poem? The poem is called A Lobato Eve. Is that right? The Drunken Boat? Uh, the Drunken Boat. Yeah, Bato, um, no, it's something like that. You yeah, can find it on, on Wikipedia. The Lobato Eve. Rambo uh, called uh, Tom, something about Tom Thumb, which is about, just like Tom Thumb's. Book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. That was quite a lot of uh, larceny going on. <laughs> it's Lobato Eve. But anyway, at that point, he wrote songs that were about specific things. Now, beyond that, and that was a long time ago because you're talking about 1964. Since then, with the very old exception, they've all been. Really, really mysterious. And you can, uh, again, this is going to sound place, but you can impose upon them whatever construct you want. And that's what they're designed for. And therefore, any factual information that anchors the concept of Bob Dylan at all, in any way, about the construction of that song, about his life, about the world he inhabits, I find incredibly fascinating. (laughs) Because I still don't know very much about him after all this time. I mean, I'm going back to your point about... 66 sessions. Uh, there's some marvellous moments in that, which I only got to discover recently, because all the stuff's still coming out, you know, which is where he writes Sad-Eyed Lo- Lady of the Lowlands. And he's working on a system whereby the group, who are being paid triple time, this is the group, I think, headed up by Al Cooper, am I right? Is the yeah, musical director of the group. Correct. And I think it probably contains uh, Kenny Buttry and Charlie McCoy, all, all, the, all the old Nashville session men. These guys are thinking, this is great, because this guy only wants to record at three o'clock in the morning, because Dylan's on this sort of extraordinary circuit where he's, he's getting up kind of late and then he's writing a song a day and then he's, he's working on his piano on his own in his room and then he has to sleep for an hour to be able to get himself ready to go and do the session. 
And at about 9 or 10 or 11 or often midnight, he goes to see the music director, Al Cooper, and says, this is the chord sequence, which he did for Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. And they run through it. It's a very simple sequence with a little bridge section in it. And he says, play the whole sequence. It's a waltz. Play it five times. And they go, five times? Crikey, how are we going to keep varying this? And they record it at 3 in the morning. They've been playing pool, haven't they? They've been yeah. playing pool and drinking, yeah. actually. And they're on triple time, and they're thinking, this is just, we're, in, we're making hay here. And they only record it twice. And apparently both recordings were really good. But the idea that he, that song had not been written, hadn't really been finished at 10 or 11 o'clock, yeah. and yeah. was still being worked on between the takes, I find that incredibly exciting. Yeah. And apparently, that's what it's on, all about. Apparently, uh, he, he, you know, Al Cooper, uh, well, or Dylan, said to he, uh, the musicians, just keep playing. You might think it's over, but it's not. That's right. Yeah, it's, 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 you'll just keep going and yeah. keep going. And they do. And very long. And you can imagine trying to play those little kind of hi-hats, yeah. tippy-taps all the way through and keep them going. going. Yes, and, they, and those yeah. guys, the Nashville guys, who, oddly enough, were not that much older than Bob Dylan and, yeah. and Al Cooper. Everybody thinks, be, you know, because they, they had short hair, that they must have been guys in their 40s. They yeah. weren't. They were the same generation. They'd never been used to playing anything longer than three minutes, had they? No. Because the country record, particularly in those days... It was very condensed form, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. And so, yeah, they couldn't believe that Sarah lately and so forth were going on that long. This is a lovely bit where Cooper looks at one of the others and he shrugs and he just he, he gives an expression and says, that's all I've got. Yeah. And this is, he's going, keep going, because it's actually, is it a 14 minute song? I can't it's remember. It's about 10 minutes. It's, ten, yeah, ten or 11 it's minutes. old side of it. Yeah. Anyway. One of the things that always fascinates me, uh, and it probably relates to that point at the beginning, is, is he, he's never verbalised any of these things, has he? Yeah. And so... His way of working mu- with musicians is never to tell them anything at all. Absolutely not. He really doesn't believe in this. And I found another story this morning which I'd never come across before. And it relates to a story I'd heard ages ago that in the last 10, 15 years on his kind of so-called never-ending tour and so forth, um, one of the drummers he used was Ian Wallace, great British-born, largely a session drummer, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he has played on Bob Dylan records. And... Um, and he bumped into Ian Wallace in Malibu and said, I'd like you to come on my next tour. We start rehearsal a week on Monday or something like that. And Wallace goes, great. And he turns up with his drum kit and his roadie and so forth. And he finds another drum kit is already in the rehearsal studio. Uh, and what, what, what becomes apparent to him during the morning? Uh, our dear late friend John Baldy, I'm sure, told me this story years ago, that, that uh, what becomes apparent is... He's not the only drummer inside. Yeah. He's got another one as well. Yeah. And he hasn't explained to either of them that there's going to be another one. Yeah. And this is... The, apparently, he's got, he's got form on this. That I was reading this, that Richie Hayward of Little Feet was hired to be a drummer on a Bob Dylan tour a few years yeah. back. Richie Hayward died last year. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and he was also with another drummer. And they kind yeah. of got on OK. It was sort of fine. A little bit in each other's way. Are we splitting the fee? <laughs> <laughs> And it only changed when halfway through the tour, Bob Dylan wandered out to sound check, looked at the equipment on the stage, decided he didn't like looking at two drum kits. So he said, get rid of one. And after that, they, the two of them shared one drum kit. Because <laughs> he just didn't like the... You know, he didn't make the right... Neither of them wanted to be sacked, so they just yeah. sh- sh- shuffled up on one little drum stool between them. <laughs> I think yeah. they won't notice. Yeah. They won't yeah. notice. Yeah. tunes or something like that. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's... It flies so much in the face of everything else that's done in popular music, which is so planned. Yeah. You're right about not telling them uh, what he wants. When I co-wrote this 
this book. Go on, so, plug your book, Andy. A Simple Twist of Fate. Still available in all By the way, today, if this is going up today, anyway, what is today? Friday. Friday. Andy has written a stupendous piece in the independent newspaper. It'll still be on the independent Britain. website. If it's on the website. Was it 70 17 reasons? reasons why Bob Dylan is the most significant figure in pop culture. OK, fine. Pop uh, culture, we're going right across the Not sitting on the fence. Not just music. No, no, absolutely. We're going right across. Have you ever heard Nick Haywood of Haircut 100? He's really good. Anyway, you've written it. Anyway, yeah, I wrote this book about Blood on the Tracks uh, with uh, Kevin Odegaard, who played on the Minneapolis sessions for Blood on the Tracks. And uh, I interviewed the, uh, the guys who did the New York sessions, Eric Weisberg's band. And they said, that, you know, they, these were professional session guys who were, you know, they would do jingles, advertising, any, anything, you know, that came along. And they just knew they got a session and it was for Bob. And they thought, wow, this is going to be great. So they went along and uh, Bob not only wouldn't tell them what the chord changes were, he didn't tell them what the tuning of his guitar was. <laughs> so even though they were, they were pro, pro musicians and they could follow his fingers, yeah. they didn't know what the tuning of the guitar was, and it was a very odd tuning. And so half, they're trying to fight their way through it, and he literally won't tell them. And then they finish one run-through of that song, and they think, well, I think I might just have grasped that. No, he'll start another one. And they'll go on like this. And then the next day, no, he doesn't want them. All yeah. he wants is the bassist, because the bassist has the, the relatively yeah. easy job, I guess, of just, you know, comping through the, uh, yeah. through the thing. Yeah, loves the and, challenge. Uh, and and uh, so the bassist appeared on some of the tracks, but uh, the, uh, none of the others, unfortunately. For the... let's, oh. go, let's go back. I asked you to prepare an answer to this question. All right, go on. Can you remember the first time you heard Bob Dylan? <laughs> oh, that's, well, that's easy for me, because it was... Um, we didn't have any of his records, but we heard him on the radio... And he had a, a hit single, which I assume then was Blowing in the Wind in 1963. Really? Times Era Changing, I think, was his... Oh, well, was that was the first yeah. one we heard. Oh, right. I had three elder sisters, and I used to discover pop music by listening outside my elder sister's uh, bedroom where she had a transistor, which I didn't have. Which is why I first heard the Beatles, too. She knew I was outside and opened the door, and I fell through. <laughs> I literally <laughs> fell through. I was having a fast. <laughs> I knew you were listening. I said, what is it? It sounds great. Never you mind. Slam. <laughs> but anyway... I, that's where I heard it, and it was brilliant. And then a week later, she went out and bought a a PVC uh, Dylan cap. Dylan used to wear a cap at that time. So she bought the cap cap. before the record. No, the record was out. She was on it. She was a bit of a beatnik. She went out and bought it, so she's wandering around. PVC Dylan cap. Wandering around Fleet Hampshire in her PVC Dylan cap, (laughs) whistling the times there. Then she learned to play, uh, um, I think, that song and various other Dylan songs on the acoustic guitar, which she used to do in the garden. It's interesting that nobody ever talks about this now, because there was a time... When he was a fashion leader, wasn't he? Mm, absolutely. I mean, in yeah. sartorial yeah. Oh, yeah. terms. The Dylan cap was a... The, was the Dylan a, cap know. and the kind of mad hair. Oh, yeah. And, you the know, birds and the sunglasses uh, birds and all those. People copied that, you know. I oh, the tooth suit of 66. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing I was thinking about. The first time I... Actually, I think I'm right in saying this. The first time I heard him was, bizarrely enough, in a school classroom at the Folk Club at Queen Elizabeth Grammar School, Wakefield, in, I don't know when, 63, 64... So all I know is another side of Bob Dylan had just come out. So was it, that came after Freewheeling, didn't it? I think it did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. I think so. Gosh. Uh, well, and, letters. So, and so he'd oh, made, I think you'll he'd made three, four records. He'd made four records by then yeah. before I'd actually got to hear him. But I was hugely aware of him, you know, because you used to read about him in the NME or the Record Mirror or whatever, because, you know, 
he'd written these songs that I don't know Peter Paul and Mary and all these other people were, were recording you know because as we've said before on the podcast he was a jobbing songwriter wasn't yeah. he that's mm, one of the ways yeah. that he got known and so Richard Hughes who was in the sixth form who actually had some Hughesy. Bob Dylan records the idea was oh. that the folk club wouldn't oh. meet and there would be a recital of Bob no. Dylan records in fact and me, and my, mate, me and my mate Dave uh, we went we were kind of spotty 14 year olds or whatever we weren't really encouraged to go to the, the folk society, which, as you can imagine, was pretty much dominated by the more cerebral older <laughs> members of the school. Yes. Uh, but we Chin got in there because we just wanted to hear what this guy sounded like. We'd already decided we liked him. In fact, we loved him, but we'd heard his songs. But I hadn't actually heard him singing them. And we were so kind of out of the loop. And it, and he was his name was so little used on the radio and the television that we... we I, Clearly remember, we went through months calling him Bob Dylan. Yep, it happened. Now, Andy, you you agree? You did the uh, same thing, you know? Yeah, Bob Dylan was Bob Dylan. Because <laughs> you read about it, you see this name and you think Bob Dylan. Never heard anybody say it. You've never heard anybody say it. No, and you know, so he was quite famous, but unheard. Awful and the moment shock when you of got hearing to suddenly admit that you were wrong. The yeah, shock of hearing talking New York blues played on a crackly old, you know, you know, school gramophones always used yeah. to be encased in wood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of trundled down from the classical music department so you could play yeah. Bob Dylan records. And I can see this room now and I can hear that sound. You can hear Dylan. Mm. Yes. Well, Andy, when, my when first, did you My first uh, was, I think it was Subterranean Homesick Blues. Oh, right. And I'm not sure but I, because, I, you know, logic tells me I can't possibly have seen it but at that point, but the card dropping sequence from Don't Look mm. Back was uh, absolutely crucial uh, thing to me. I, you know, seeing that for the first time, I just would thought, that have been on the telly? I suppose it well, exactly. This is been, it, it may have been used just you know uh, in that year, but I, I can't imagine why because that was the first album I ever bought. Yeah, uh, for I, my twelfth birthday, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it changed my life. I think I can I can remember. And people might listening to this might be able to respond and tell to tell me if I'm mistaken. I think I can remember Subterranean Homesick Blues being played on jukebox jury with David Jacobs in his immaculate. It may have been that, yeah. Probably. Possibly. Yeah. Introducing a panel which would feature, you know, Pete Sam Murray. Costa, Pete yeah. Murray, Costa. you know, Louise Corday and yes. Paul Jones out man from man. No, but yeah. it wouldn't be. Um, and and, and they, would, they would play this record and it sounded like something from another planet. Yeah. It sounded just, you know, absolutely intoxicatingly strange. Yeah. I can remember having to, uh, having to put... Uh, Pennies on top of the uh, yes, top yes, of the, on top of the it arm. vibrated so because well, it was there, there was so much on that bringing it all back home album. It was that it was micro grooved or something, and so the needle kept jumping out on the outer. Yeah, yeah, if you only had, had a seven inch platter, threatening bit or something. Exactly, right. so, so and trying to find out what all the words were yes. because it just kept jumping through some terrain and blues. And I just, which made it even more confusing. Yeah, uh, and I had very bad versions of it because we recorded with on a reel to reel. We recorded uh, somebody else's copy of these records. That was our nearest mm. we could get to bootlegging. So I was listening to a very bad recording through a tiny mic, uh, through a, of a tiny loudspeaker playing the record. So again, it was very hard to work out what the words were. And a lot of the time, I think I just probably just had to make up my own, which would no less strange or, or understandable than his own. Absolutely. Yeah. So Fraser. I don't remember the first time I heard Dylan, but I remember my first exposure to Dylan's songs, which was, uh, I had a school teacher, Mrs Vick, 
who Mrs. has uh, very long hair and very long flowing skirts. Oh, I can uh, see Mrs. Hey, Fig. Yeah. Mrs. Fig. Mrs. Fig had a guitar. Every week in assembly, she would play. <laughs> She'd like a, a scented candle. Mine. She'd play. He was a friend of mine. Oh, oh yes. yes. And that's how I got to know Bob Dylan. You're right. Is that officially a Bob Dylan song? It's. It's. I think he was a friend of mine. Is a kind of. Adaptation of an old gospel I think so, kind, of, yeah. kind of folk tune. But yeah, he certainly used to sing it. And the birds sang it, didn't they? The birds it? did a very good version. The birds did it on the first album. Well, it's good work yeah. for Mrs. Vic, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and you guys went along with it. You didn't throw rotten fruit at her or anything. Oh, no, no. There was a whole tribe of children touching them. So, so, so things about Bob Dylan that we already turned up that I don't think will be in many of the you know celebrations of his 70th birthday. One, he was a fashion leader. Yeah. Two, he was huge in schools. <laughs> Massive. Huge. We used to walk around just holding his records. Yeah, Yeah. teachers used to encourage you, didn't they? To listen to Bob Dylan. You know, and I'm not just talking about teachers who were kind of youngish beatniks. You know, I can remember telling my father while listening, you know, and Peaceable and Mary doing the first Bob Dylan songs that I've probably ever heard. I heard on Sunday night at the London Palladium. Wow. You know, because this stuff would go into the mainstream of showbiz. You know, you, the, these songs will be done. And all those yeah. Trini Lopez or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody did a Bob Dylan song. And the story about Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan was, hey, he doesn't just sing about Moon and June. Yeah, He absolutely. sings about things yeah. that matter, things he, that have stories. You should listen to the words, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And school, the, the educational establishment, massively embraced Didn't that. Didn't he once say to Keith Richards, I could have written, the difference between you and me is, is I could have written Satisfaction, but you couldn't have written the, the Mr. Like Tambourine. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> to which the answer would be, it's a fair cop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a fair cop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking this earlier, I noticed earlier today that, that get, you know, pop singer Kathy Kirby died today yeah today, about the office. Right, I and that, yeah. and and i was just looking on the on the newspaper sites and it said 60s pop singer kathy gerber now when bob dylan shuffles off this mortal coin will they say 60s what will they say probably will. well what are the two words that they will put before his name on the bbc you know well for years they used to say folk protest singer. <laughs> that's yeah. how they just describe who's a folk protest singer and he was asked in that famous interview wasn't he in paris was he in paris and he said uh, said um, how many folk Protest singers are there or something? Do you remember? 367. 367 or something. No, no, 425. <laughs> you know, and, and the girl's looking at him, he's a bit not, you know, doesn't crack a smile. Does he? It's so brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, probably be, I mean, yeah, I mean, the rock press. The word 60s were probably getting 60s, though, it? probably. The voice then. of a generation is the, yes. uh, the phrase. Uh, the voice of a generation, a man who bestrowed Baby the international stage. But he bestrowed the international stage like a behemoth. You see, because. The, because <laughs> <laughs> they always say that. I always think of a big, really very large butterfly. It's <laughs> a huge moth. <laughs> but isn't this selling him massively short? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, the notion that they, people can't stop talking about the 60s and Bob Dylan. You know, mm. as if that's the only time in which he exists. He's the oldest man ever to have been uh, number one in both Ameri- the American charts and the British charts. And he's the oldest man ever to have gone straight in at number one in the American album charts with his last album. It was Already, it, it, I'm learning things. There are 69 of Andy Gill's facts to go, by the way. That's the other thing. The other, All is good. That's the good. other thing that he famously <laughs> says a lot, doesn't he, that, that people, you know, he spends a lot of his time trying to correct people's misconceptions about him. And, uh, you know, they'll always ask him about the 60s, and he'll always say, I don't know anything about the 60s yeah. at all. He'll say, I know about the 50s. He'll, he'll actually go further. He'll say that he, he looks back at those songs and he can't imagine the person that wrote them. 
Yeah. He, he, doesn't under, he doesn't know how he wrote those songs, you know. Because he suddenly had this massively accelerated life, didn't yeah. he, in yeah. the 60s? After having had a normal life, suddenly it was totally changed for, over a completely different one. You wonder if he's embarrassed by himself. Go on. I don't know. If you, when you watch that footage... He's so unlike that character now, isn't he? I mean, he, he's... He, Which footage are you talking about? The talking footage, about I'm talking about the footage. You know, the, yeah. the, the absolute peak, you know, when he's at the press conferences and when he's realised that to make his name... And it's interesting, cause it's a bit like the Beatles, really, that, that everyone thinks those things are terribly organic. They're so inorganic. It's ridiculous. You know, he invented a whole fictitious past, didn't he? He wrote his own press release, I think, when he was signed to Columbia. I'm pretty sure, in which he stands this fiction up and he says he's born on a... A fairground. Andy knows much more about it than me. Yes, correct me. I think he says he's born on a fairground, a travelling fair. He, he was certainly a, a part of a circus. He's a, a circus, <laughs> and uh, you know he's taken his whole Woody Guthrie fantasy completely. His and, parents were dead. You know, which is again fascinating because I mean, if he was to be launched now, these things are unimaginable in the world of YouTube. You know, you would immediately have footage of a guy on his Facebook site, a bloke, you know, middle class boy at uh, university. Yes. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, just being terribly well-behaved. Winning a school a, talent contest. Winning a talent contest. Although, actually, there's another interesting fact. If you look at his school yearbook picture, which I do think is very revealing, it's fantastic how on message he is then. I think they're all asked what they're going to do, and they all want to... He says... He says... Go on. His ambition... Yeah. ...to follow Little Richard. I think... Is it, or is it play the piano in Little yeah, Richard's to follow Little Richard. to follow Little Richard, that's right. And that's what does he mean to follow him? Does he mean to go well, on the road after him? Richard is to be the, I will be the, next, to be the next, the next Richard. Little Richard. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, in Chronicles, there's a lovely bit where he talks about, um, which if anyone listening hasn't read, I simply cannot uh, uh, overemphasize how fantastic this book is. It's, it's great. It actually tells you stuff that actually illuminates what he's doing. It's not it's, just about yeah. sex and drugs like most... Rock oh, it's extraordinary. And he talks yeah. about in Hibbing, in Minnesota, you know, their idea of showbiz. I mean, it's not much coming through, but he sees the circus and then he sees the wrestlers. Do you remember the wrestlers? The wrestlers. There's a guy, I can't remember their names now, he's called something like the Mangler or something, and he says he was like 40 men. It's a lovely <laughs> idea, he's just like 40 men. And, and it was just, they were the <laughs> enormous characters, you know. And of course, wrestling was showbiz, you know. It was um, a theatre. It was people pretending to hurt each other. Maybe they were, I don't mm. know. But it was mostly people in, in singlets uh, <laughs> playing a tremolo, the grand tradition of WWF, actually. Mm. And so he sees the wrestlers, and then he sees um, the gospel choir, I think. And then he sees Little Richard. And he thinks this is the most incredible thing. He's, he's 15, isn't it? You yeah. remember? And there's only the yearbook thing. Everyone else is saying, I want to um, try and... You know, sorry, American accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Yeah, world peace is what I strive <laughs> to achieve. And I want to be president. You know, all that nonsense. You know? yeah. And he says, I want to join Little Bridge. So that was set in stone at that time. Yeah. But going back to the, the, the thing, he, he completely invents that fiction. He also realises that he's got these novelty things, like the Beatles had their you know, little Nero collared suits and their Beatle haircuts, and there were four of them. And they had a million things that made the headlines that was going to sell their music. Well, it was just the same with him. Wasn't it? If you think about it, he had the cap, he had a pair of trousers, and the very early um, pictures, if you look at them, they're held up with a piece of string. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like Mick Hucknall, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The early Simply Red, you know. He had his girlfriend on, on his album cover. His well, girlfriend it's hugely album. important. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Hugely. Incredible. Because, you know, again, go back to Free, free Women, I gazed at that record for yeah. days before yeah. I heard it. 
Yeah. You just want thought, I want my life to be like that. I want a suede jacket like that yeah. and a girlfriend like that. Yeah. I want to be and walking want... down a road which has a, a VW microbus park. Microbus? <laughs> also, <laughs> the lights. You can tell by the light. Thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and the light, you can tell, actually. I used to look at it so much, I can tell it's about four or five in the morning. It was. David yeah. Van Ronk is, it? is actually in the picture, but he's edited out. Of this. Oh. He's on the left of them. Oh. I think uh, Jim Marshall took the picture. I can't remember now. I've got a, 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 is that, wasn't it? I think it was. I don't know. Possibly. No, yeah, I but it's absolute fantasy. But yes, uh, yeah. all that, you know, wonderful idea that it was all, uh, you know, just a magic piece of just freewheeling integrity. But he mm. was so brilliantly self-marketed by mm. himself. He was the guy yeah, yeah, on the early interviews, the early radio interviews. He won't talk about his parents or for good reason, because if you're a highly educated academic from middle-class Minnesota, then, you know, what are you doing? You know, this doesn't work with the whole, I'm on a, from a fairground. Yeah, yeah, he, he made himself up all right from the start. When he was playing piano with Bobby V, which he, he did yeah. before he did any of this, uh, he got the uh, the gig and he called himself Elston Gunn. That's right. Gunn with three N's. Three N's. Three, three, three N's. Not sufficient. And so, yeah, no, exactly. How old was he? About what, 17 or 18? It would be, yeah, it would be yeah. late. Uh, yeah, teens because he was 19 when he uh, got to New York. See, that takes yeah. unholy Elston confidence to do Huge that. Huge kind of stuff, yeah. doesn't it? You know, at any age... But an average kid from an average high school, in a very, as he points out, in No Direction Home, and I love this, the way he goes on about it, in a very cold part of America. Yeah. He says there was no protest in it. It was too cold. Yeah. Oh, do you remember yeah. what he says? <laughs> no, he says... It's rightly cold. He says, yeah. he says uh, the summers were so hot, he says it's so cold... It's, it's mosquitoes, it's, isn't it? mosquitoes will bite their way through your boots. It's really... It's fairly unpleasant part of oh, I've never terrible. been. Oh, I've been to Minneapolis. It's terrible. Uh, right, OK, so it has yeah. the extremes of temperature. It's nearly yeah. Canada, effectively, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but to, to turn up and be a member of Bobby V's band and announce yourself as Elston gun and then hands. and then go on a bus or however he got to new york and arrive there and say i i hop to freight yeah. or whatever just takes and 10 minutes later confidence. he's i think on the victoria spivy records the harmonica player yeah. as blind boy grunt am i right was no blind, blind boy grunt was on the broadside ballads broadside uh, ballads sorry he'd already Good. signed with columbia by then oh right yeah but he's... He, he actually had a, a little period where he went to a dinky town in minneapolis which yes. is, he went he, he served one term at, at University, and that's where he got turned on to Woody Guthrie. Stole all his mates' Woody Guthrie albums. Absolutely, Tony yeah. Glover. He yeah. pinched all the records. He pinched all, yeah. the, records. He pinched all yeah. the records. And then yeah. he then he did a moonlight and yeah. uh, went off via Madison. But I wonder he cut off his ties York. with home. I didn't realize yeah. that. He, he owed them a load of Woody Guthrie yeah, albums. Yeah. Tony yeah. Guthrie's on no direction. See, home talking about again yeah. on communications. Come on, at the moment that guy had some success, all his mates have been just bombarding the internet with his. What a fake! Exactly. And can I have my albums back, you exactly. bastard? No, but if the, if the age of seventeen nowadays, you decided you wanted to listen to Big Bill Brunsey, you'd fire up YouTube. There's Big Bill Brunsey. Yeah. yeah. Let alone going to HMV or whatever. In those days, you literally couldn't hear that stuff no. unless you knew something yeah. about the record. Mm. That Absolutely. reminds me of, uh, of what Joe Boyd said in his uh, his autobiography about uh, coming to Britain and, and realizing just how poor the British were. Yes. That nobody had cars or telephones or anything like that. And he said. And in Scotland, he was, he was, I think it was Scotland, he, he uh, met somebody and they had a, uh, an album with a you know, John Lee Hooker record, record, but they didn't have a record player. Yeah. And they had to go to somebody else's house to hear their record. The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. Another question, now, moving forward into the 70s, so yeah. you know, Bob Dylan becomes a huge star and suddenly early 70s everybody's aware that Bob Dylan's a huge legend but he's kind of he's gone quiet or he's you know he's up in Woodstock or he's raising children or whatever and so the record business thinks 
well, we better not miss Bob Dylan. Let's find the next Bob Dylan. So there was a, yeah. there was a period, wasn't there, when yeah. loads of artists came along and they were billed as the next Bob Dylan. Generally because they wrote rather wordy songs, yeah. yes? Oh, yeah. And I want to know, I so, wanna know who's your favourite new Bob It was a milestone, a millstone, rather, that a few of them <laughs> could carry. And I think the only ones... That's still going on now, yeah, isn't it, really? Yeah. Is the it, only ones that could really well, carry it. Well, I saw a very interesting post the other day about somebody saying, was Eminem, was it a while ago, was Eminem the new Bob Dylan? I thought, no. Really, no, no, of course not, but I thought it was interesting <laughs> that at least they weren't... The usual reductive crass way of looking at it is if they're a solo artist who plays the harmonica on a holder and the, then the new Bob Dylan. Whereas actually the idea that a protest singer, which is what effectively Eminem is doing to some extent in a different medium. So that was quite an interesting point that he might have been the new... I'm, 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 don't no, no, OK, fair But no, who else? I mean, so I Andy, thought, go on. Who's your favourite new Bob Dylan? Well, the, the one who's been most successful was Bruce, of course. OK, yes, because first Bruce Springsteen record, that's what... There was not a single review that didn't say, you know, exactly. not since Bob Dylan wrote Subterranean Homesick Blues have we seen such yeah. a torrent of... Verbiage. Madman's, bummers, drummers and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. There, everybody liked it. Yeah. And the other, the other uh, favourite one, I think, was Loudon. Loudon Wainwright, of course. Uh, and his first album came out, and here he looks as striking on that first album cover. Well, he had the short hair, yeah, the did. ordinary shirt, and you just thought... Oh, that is a bit odd. Yeah. And he was kind of nasal, <laughs> wasn't he? You know, yeah. it was probably helped. My favourite Bob Dylan, and he's still a favourite new Bob Dylan and it, uh, of that group, and uh, and I still like listening to his records today, is John Prine. John Prine, John very much. Good, I, yeah. I thought yeah. John Prine and, and, and Loud. And a guy yeah. called Andy White, actually, was quite good. Ghost of yeah. Electricity. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. But there was I, a, there I was didn't a like Elliot by... Murphy. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. The worst of the lot was Steve Forbert. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Do you remember him? Jack Poor Rabbit Steve. Slim. Yeah. I said to interview him, and I think oh, we got off really bad. I think maybe I sort of said I think something you, like, you probably I said, so you're the like, new Bob Dylan, are you? Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. folded my arms, you know, and the press <laughs> officer who'd written that hilarious line to sell him then retreated from the room, and that's funny. But there was a, there was a great song written by a guy called Stephen Keane once called Talking Bob Dylan Imitators Contest Massacre Disaster Paranoid Blues. <laughs> so that tradition, <laughs> that grand tradition of Bob Dylan imitators has been going on for some time. Do you think there's anybody, does anybody it? go out and do impressions of Bob Dylan now? Do you think anybody does kind of love and theft Bob Dylan? Does anybody do wheezy 69 A lot easier to do, actually, wouldn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah, a vocal exactly. range of only four tones for a start. <laughs> yeah. In fact, you don't really need a voice. You just <laughs> need to smoke a lot of fags. Talking about live now. When yeah. was the first well, time you saw Bob Dylan? Well, very late. Uh, I didn't see him. Well, because, to be honest, if, you're, if, you're, if you were British, your only chance of seeing him was the Isle of Wight Pop Festival in 1969, and they didn't come again till 1978. And he played Earl's Court for six nights, and I went once, and Blackbush Aerodrome in Fleet Hampshire, where I live, bizarrely, or lived, uh, in Austin, summer of 78. So that was, I didn't actually see him until 78. So was he Were you, you, were you, were you at the, at, were you at Isle of Wight, Andy? I was. Oh, oh, I oh right. You must have oh, been about, I hitchhiked down, this is hitchhiked down from Nottingham. From Nottingham. Oh, my God. Very over, and, uh, and, and just went for the one, you know, just the day with the band and Dylan on, and that. No, so how far away? My and this God. is in, before the days of diamond vision screens oh, and relays. Yeah, yeah. And this he was, was a little guy in a white suit. That's and thank God he was in a white suit, because <laughs> had he not yeah. been, you wouldn't have had a, an idea of the, anybody there at all. Yeah. Can you remember? Can you remember him coming on? You remember? You remember what? You remember seeing it all? I mean, yeah. That, well, you know, it's obviously uh, the, you know, the mists of time and all that. But I, I, you know, I can distinctly remember both him and the band because you had to wait so long for them. <laughs> 
But that's it. You see, I, you know, I read wait, something wait, recently wait. about the Isle of Wight. I was very interested because I didn't go. I'm only a tiny bit younger than you, so I probably... Well, I couldn't really. I mean, I was 14. You must have been about 15 or something. It was very like that, yeah, yeah, we yeah. were very young. But anyway, I read a thing about it. Two extraordinary things I didn't know. One, he was contracted to... They were so desperate for him to come because the festival was entirely hinged around the concept of Bob Dylan. Mm. Nothing else mattered. Yeah. They were so desperate in their negotiation. He had a very uh, heavy-handed manager, as we all remember, that they said they would... He could come any way he wanted and stay as long as he wanted and they would lay everything on. They had the farmhouse, they had the drivers and all that. And he agreed to come on the QE2. And they got aboard the QE2. I didn't know this. And his, somehow his son Jesse was injured. Do you know the story? Yeah, got sick or something. He or got, became sick. ill. Yeah. He, no, he was ill. They hadn't left. No, they were on. And some injury happened and they left the boat. At which point this was communicated to the promoters of the festival <laughs> who were just thinking, we are literally screwed here. <laughs> we've sold, it wasn't the Isle of Wight Festival. It was kind of Dylan, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. They, they, Presumably they all the money had been spent on Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah. everything was spent on Bob Dylan. And, so, and also Dylan you know, hadn't played for a long time I suppose since about 76 no, absolutely. Be. It was a... and then so he'd come over and there's just this fantastic stuff which again I didn't, I didn't know the full details but he's on the farm and eventually one by one the Beatles come and I think all four of them I, I don't know if McCartney was there the other three I think McCartney was there all so. the other three and at one point yes they are all four Beatles yeah. are there and they play the four Beatles Dylan uh, I think Eric Clapton and various people have a bit of a jam at the, at the farm but the key thing is that in the afternoon there's a tennis court and none of them really know how to play tennis they say oh Let's have a go at this. Sounds amazing. <laughs> and John Lennon says, "Oh, okay. We're going to do all the accents." Don't we? Yeah. So he said, oh, "I'll play tennis as long, you know, as long as nobody else knows how to play or whatever." You know, so they all play, yeah. and it's, they team up. It's Lennon and Dylan play Harrison and Ringo, mm-hmm. and Patty Boyd is the ball girl watching, keeping the score, and telling what to so do. At least one person with good just... legs on the court. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. I'm, I'm sure that they would all have been, you know, a little the worse yeah. for wear. Oh dear! Wearing Can you Cuban heels. You're wearing stuff. Cuban heels. That exactly. That would be totally. They were massive flares, flares, <laughs> flapping around. <laughs> Huge pairs of blue drink. Yeah. I wonder if they're martini all over the court. <laughs> so, the, see, uh, question I want to ask you about uh, Isle of Wight. From what I can gather, you know, bits I've heard, obviously wasn't there. He didn't do a set that was in any way equal to the scale of the occasion, no, which, which was an indication of what he was going to do in the future, wasn't it? Virtually, yeah. You know? I, I think uh, if, if reading about it since then, uh, Al Aronovitz, who was Dylan's you know, mate in those days, uh, who was a New York scenester and, uh, and bohemian, he was uh, sort of Dylan's roadman gopher uh, sort of thing. And Jonathan Taplin, who later became a film producer, produced Mean Streets, he was the band's road manager, and the band wanted good sound, and Jonathan Taplin refused to let them go on until he had sorted out the sound. And this took several hours. Meanwhile, Dylan is back in a, in a trailer without a toilet. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, getting and he's being incredibly nervous. Getting very apparently, angry, apparently. Yeah. Going, you know, why aren't they on that? You know, yeah. you know, they're supposed to be on at half past eight. Of course, they were, they were playing first, yes. And Jonathan Taplin wouldn't let them go on, and Aleronovitz kept getting sent out. Back by, by Dylan to go and tell him to go on, and he'd go to Robbie Robertson and go, you know, when are you going to come on? And Robbie, well, you know, we can't go on until the road manager says we can go on, and and it's right. back and forth like this, and eventually Dylan wants to go to the toilet, and he says, I'm not going out there. I don't want to have to go to these, you know, public toilets because everybody out there 
backstage would be just kind of like, there's Bob, there's yeah, Bob. Sure. How on earth are you going to go to the toilet yeah, with yeah. everybody it's watching? It's hard enough anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And apparently he uh, apparently pissed out the window or something uh, <laughs> of, the, of the trailer rather than uh, take any... Uh, yeah. But he was in a uh, terrible state by the end because I mean, he hadn't yeah, played he, for what time. And of course the level absolutely. of expectations, you say, I didn't know about that delay, but it was so ramped up mm. that it, it was almost inevitable. It could only really be a disappointment, you know. Yeah. But the band did sound great when they came on. Yeah. And, uh, and I can understand them, because most of the rest of it uh, that afternoon had been, like, it had been uh, Tom Paxton and people like that. It had been solo artists and Richie Havens. Yeah, and, oh, right. And so, so they were the first band. rock and roll bands that was there. Yeah, so yeah. they had a lot more to get sorted yeah. out. Now, I and then when if... Bob came on, it was uh, he, the first thing he thought was, geez, <laughs> that doesn't sound like Bob. It's this kind of like... That this fruity strange, voice, fruity isn't voice, strange, yeah, that, that kind of strange country voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so there started at, at, uh, at the Isle of Wight, though his long and uh, distinguished history of disappointing audiences. <laughs> which oh, is, no, oh the worst there, was no, the no. flaw. You were there, weren't you? <laughs> the flaw, yeah, oh, that my was terrible. God, the flaw, the worst one. Worst ever. Oh, there's been many. This is Finsbury Pop. Oh, we flaw and Finsbury Pop. Probably, what, 90... When would it be? 98? I, I don't know. Oh, I got so bored with that. It was, it was terrible. It was horizontal rain. And yeah. it's rain going under the lip of the stage and going right back into three quarters of the stage. Mm. And you know, I don't think Andy will say that I'm exaggerating when I say they came out and he said, Hey, Mr. Timberine there, please serve me. And then they retreated back and <laughs> stood out of the rain, just playing the chords over and over again for about 10 minutes. And then he shuffled forward. It's still getting pelted, obviously. He went, <laughs> In the jingle jangle morning, I can't following you. And that was the end of the song. He goes, What? And then there's the next one. And it was just, oh, I've never... People with their you know, umbrellas blown inside out. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Outside gigs are always a bit of a risk, aren't they? So, yeah, know. they are. But his indoor gigs can be fantastic. Are you... Oh, can they? Have you seen uh, one that is? Yeah. No, I'm not being sarky. <laughs> I'm not being sarky. No, I love Bob Dylan, but I've, whenever I've seen him, he's been terrible. Well, I I, uh, I followed the 2000 tour around. Uh, I did it for uh, Mojo magazine. Yeah. Uh, I hired, went up to Aberdeen, hired a car and followed the tour. <laughs> I stalked him, let's be pretty. Yeah, that's fine. And, uh, and I went to most of the gigs, well, all the gigs on that tour. And uh, and they were fantastic, because that was the band with Larry Campbell and Charlie Sexton. Charlie Sexton and Larry Campbell. That Brilliant was a great band. band. And and there are some fantastic evenings on, on that Anybody tour. listening, uh, if you can find the song Summer Days, Summer 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 Days and Summer Nights Are, are Gone, uh, the, the, the two guitar solos on that, in, 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 coming out of each speaker, are Larry and Charlie Sexton. Aren't they amazing? They're, fun, they're fantastic. Oh, Andy's brought out some... Andy produces bootleg. Oh, produces bootleg. <laughs> <laughs> I, made, uh, I made up this... Uh, this Compilation from various bootlegs. Oh, how brilliant! This and, is actually uh, and it's dual got... cases here. Oh, look! That's a two CD. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, there we are. Superb. It's basically it's the best renditions of the, sort of the various songs from each day. You see, in my experience of Bob Dylan, it's always if you go and see him, people always say you should have been here last night. It was really good. Yeah, yeah. And you've always just missed well, it. My favourite was uh, Glasgow, which this is the uh, the bootleg for Glasgow. Which came out probably about a week or two afterwards, right? And I, I, uh, I got it, of course, because I thought, "Wow, that was a great gig! I want that one." It's a fantastic version of uh, "It's All Right, Ma," and so on. And I get this, and I think, "Oh, this uh, sleeve note uh, reads pretty familiar." 
Did the boot leg you out? Yes. Bill yes. <laughs> seemed to ring a bell. Well, yeah. but uh, you know, no, my name button. didn't appear on the, uh, oh, that's the credit. It was but, oh, that's... someone bootlegged my review. Well, that'll serve you. Do you remember all the things you used to say about the band? On stage, you used to have a multi multi instrumentalist bloke with him for a long time called Bucky Baxter. Yeah, and he once introduced him on stage. See, when I first met Bucky Baxter, he didn't have a penny to his name. I told him. Get a new name. <laughs> <laughs> I've asked you. I've asked everybody to come along. Well, I haven't got them myself, but I hope you have. Five surprising facts about Bob Dylan. Oh, oh I've, Lord, I've got several. Oh, oh, oh God. Several Andy, first. you go first. Surprising okay. fact about Bob Dylan. One. Uh, Bob Dylan has had the most uh, references in uh, courtroom proceedings in American uh, trials. Uh, in a 2007 survey of this. He had been quoted in legal judgments or in, oh, in councils 186 times. The next highest was the Beatles, 74 times. That's probably way ahead of Shakespeare and the Bible. I would it? think so, yeah. Right. yeah. And another, go on. Another one, um, uh, OK. Uh, Bill Berg, the drummer on the uh, Minneapolis sessions for uh, Blood on the Tracks, is, as soon as those sessions were finished, literally the next day, he packed up the U-Haul trailer and he moved off to Los Angeles where he became a, an animator for Disney and he became the hero animator. He, his heroes included the Beast in uh, Beauty and the Beast and Hades in Hercules. So if you wow. see those things, that's the drummer from Blood on the Tracks. Is that a drummer? The drummer, yeah. He did that. Okay. Is, we're digging deep into any more independent facts? Have you got any facts? I've got a few. I've probably used some of them up already. Actually. I, like, I like the fact that, um, uh, which I know I've go on about the office all the time, but Victor Mahmoudis I love. His mm. great pal, I, 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 I thought originally he was at school with Victor Mahmoudis but I think he just met him in New York uh, before he um, and he became his friend and he used to carry his guitar and, and I love the fact that the, right up until Mahmoudis actually died about uh, probably five or six years ago it, he used to take him on tour with him and, this, and it's very touching really because I think you know if you're you know, in that level of celebrity in that bubble, then what kind of relationship are we ever going to have? And the people that you meet before you're famous or knew those friendships you've retained become more and more valuable. And he took this guy on the road with him and they used to just play chess three or four times a week. And he had another old mate that used to go riding bicycles with around, around the city. He'd get to Berlin or something after the sound show, he'd get his mountain bike out and go for it. I thought it was rather sweet that he took this old school pal hmm. on the road with him. Another thing I thought was his, his great hobby is welding. You remember welding. A welding. He yeah, has he an oxygenly welder. He was in a movie playing a, a, a welding artist. Was he? Yeah, was I he? can't remember. It was some terrible movie, and it was literally just a cameo. Because he could weld. They were looking for Presumably, somebody who yeah. could weld. But I love it. I know, you know, were you Equity in God the unlikely event he was in a sort of interview with Hello magazine? They were sort of saying, <laughs> so, Mr. Mr. Dillon, what do you do to relax? You know, the truth is, he just, yes, he, <laughs> he just yes, he fuses old pieces of bedstead onto <laughs> uh, lumps of pig iron. They put out a record called Weld Gone wrong yeah. uh, well gone wrong <laughs> what else I like I mean this is not it's not a fact but I still like that whole thing about the story of Mr Tambourine Man which I we were talking about earlier that Rambo poem because I think I, I think all art should be like this really you know I, I like the fact that Dylan was as inspired by other artists as, as, as people subsequently were by him you know that he took certain lines he's um, I'm, I'm reading that from an article written by myself um, <laughs> Just happened to brought it, <laughs> but he was. You know, one of the things that inspired him most in 1957 was the 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 line from a Ginsberg poem, "The Hydrogen Jukebox World." Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? And he mm -hmm. just said he was going to go out and find this world. And uh, Kubla Khan by Coleridge, mm -hmm. which she describes sparkling allegories and big ass truths wrapped <laughs> up in a hard shell of 
nonsensical abstraction. Big it's a ass big ass truth. truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big, Kubla Khan is a big ass truth. I love that. And so but we're constantly goes, finding things that he stole, aren't we? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah completely. Yeah. You know, there's, the whole, there's the whole uh, thing about the Japanese uh, uh, samurai. Uh, yes, thing. go on, what's that? That was in, uh, was it uh, Love and Theft, I think? Uh, aptly titled Love and Theft. Yes, quite. Where, uh, someone uh, was uh, working in Japan and uh, they. Uh, or, and they, you know, they got the out. They were a Dylan, old Dylan freak. Yeah. And they got the album, and they realised that a lot of it sounded really familiar. And they'd read, read these lines before. And apparently, there's this book called Memories of a Geisha or something. That's right. Uh, and uh, it's a Japanese book. And he'd read this whilst he was in Japan. And he'd just gone straight into the songs. And a lot of these lines, you know, uh, you know, my lord is, you know, I work for my lord. Something, you know. That all, that all these lines you, were just taken, abstracted, and just dropped into his songs. You were probably both... But then how do how, they all do songs? Bob Dylan... Mm. Oh, John Boyd, I was just going to mention that. Exactly. Press conference on the South Bank, in, yeah. whenever we talk about... 86. 86. Maltese, Maltese Falcon. Maltese Falcon, yeah. Wait, wait, so Bob Dylan was over here uh, taking part in a not-very-good film called Hearts, Hearts of Fire. Hearts of Fire. And anyway, part, <laughs> of, the, part yeah. of the deal was he did a press conference at the NFT on a Sunday morning, yes, um, in order that the press would leave him alone. And so there he was, confronted by just Philip about Norman everybody who was interested unpleasant. in Bob Dylan in, in, in this theatre. And, and loads of people asking sort of silly questions or you know, just, just trying to, you know, people keep throwing that question about it, to him about, do you feel you betrayed your protest mm. roots and all that sort of stuff. He has no answer. It's, it's pointless him mm. trying to answer that kind of thing. And he was, he was just kind of fielding things as best he could. The only thing that got a response from him was when our old colleague John Baldy is sadly no longer Huge with us. expert. He, he was, ran he a... Would uh, the mm. Bob Wonderful fancy uh, called the Telegraph, Telegraph. And, uh, and whatever was Bob Dylan's album at the time, I can't remember, um, he said there are lots of uh, references to Philip Marlowe novels here. Isn't that what he said? Yeah. Is it particularly the Maltese Falcon? Maltese Falcon. And Bob Dylan just looked at him like, I've been caught here. You know? <laughs> he really... To absolutely. <laughs> I, I, he was at least enthusiastic because he was being presented with a high-caliber question by somebody yeah. who did at least care about him. I mean, the rest yeah. of his tabloid press, one of the girl calls famously asked him how old he was. The question was, how old he was. Do you remember that? Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I remember nobody asked him at the time was, have you got secretly married again? Yes. Yeah. Which uh, he had. Which yeah, yeah, and nobody knew, life. nobody in the world knew. Yeah. You know. I remember John Baldy saying uh, once that he, he, he met Bob and uh, and he said, "Oh, I uh, I, I do this uh, fanzine uh, called the Telegraph. Have you read it?" And he said, uh, "Yeah, I like it. It's full of stuff about me." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, that's Dave's famous story, of course. Can I tell her? You're going to tell What's her. What's that? When you interviewed him. Dave interviewed him. It was absolutely marvellous. The interview yeah. is going... Dave's finding he's not getting much response. It's agonising. And uh, Dylan... To make all you can hear is my sweat falling on the floor. And uh, Dylan goes out of the room and says to a guy called uh, Julian Shapiro... No, it wasn't. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a guy from CBS, yeah, yeah. anyway. And he says in, in New York, and he says, uh, he says, I said, hi, Bob, how's the interview going with David Hepworth from Q Magazine? He goes, he said, not too good. He said, why does he? He keeps asking me all these questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of... <laughs> I think I think that's that's a great truth about interviews, isn't it? Yeah. You pretend to have Absolutely. questions. You don't really have questions. You're not a police interrogator, are no, you? No, you're just you know, you're you fishing. just want them yeah. to talk. You're yeah, fishing. Yeah, you're fishing. Yeah. And yeah. and actually, Bob Dylan 
He's a fantastic talker when he feels like exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. He's a brilliant talker. Nobody mm. talks better about his music than he does. Yeah. Far better than any critic. Yeah. But he just has to feel like it. And most of the questions he's faced with are, are dealing with stuff that is just of no interest to him at all. Well, he, you know, it's like the most recent... Although, amazingly, most recently, he issued this statement, didn't he, over the Chinese... The Chinese you know, toured thing, yeah. in China, and there was lots of speculation about had he censored his own set for the yeah. Chinese government. And he actually issued a statement saying, no, I didn't. So you no, know, he didn't. And, and, yeah, he tacks on a paragraph saying something yeah. along the lines of, um, you know, he's all these about people, to be 70, isn't he, next week? Yeah, and, uh, and all, all these people are pretty unbooked. You see, if you've ever, someone stopped doing Zach's nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do George Harrison. Yeah. He should do the whole thing in If you've ever seen, no, it doesn't quite work. And he says, he says, if you've ever if you've ever met me, or or just been to one of my concerts, he says, do write a book. He said, you know, have a go. You may have a book in you. You may have a book in you. No, I mean, it's the implication being that there have been so many books written about it that haven't been, been very great. Further question. What's the biggest misconception, in your view, that people have about Bob Dylan? That he's not funny. Oh, oh right. that's a great answer. Oh, that's a very good answer. Because it's obvious you, you listen to some songs, of course he's funny, he's a laugh a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, oh, Bob, Bob Dylan's 115th Dream and any of the talking blues. Well, all, all, the, all the press release about China. All the theme time radio uh, yeah, things, which all we've done many times on the podcast, but the great joke. Very droll, yeah. The joke is my wife and I were happy for 30 years, and then we met. <laughs> that's a great joke. <laughs> what do you think, Mark? What's the God, greatest misconception? I was nearly as good as that. I suppose it's probably something I've already talked about, but I think it's the idea that he um, is a sage seer and prophet. You know, uh, yes. uh, everybody. But he sits there having great thoughts. Sage seer and prophet. I think people still yes. think now. Sits there every night. Bob Dylan right now. Beard, he's yeah. stroking his beard in the big yeah. old chair in Malibu, <laughs> thinking, "What thought shall I have? What thought yeah. shall I have?" Uh, uh, this is just, you know, it, a, it's monstrously unfair thing to put up. He's thinking about welding. He's thinking about <laughs> yeah. what he's going to have for lunch. <laughs> Bob Dillon's it's tea. It's like an old episode yeah. of Cheers he can find on some cable <laughs> network somewhere. He's not sitting there trying to either fathom the meaning of the universe or set to right some terrible political uh, wrong in the world. I don't think... And, and, and the trouble is that he's... Well, not the trouble, because this is what made him, let's be honest, this is what made him, was that brief period, and it was really brief in terms of the length of his career, when he was going out with Susie Rotolo and he writes the protest songs... That made his reputation. Now, he didn't actually have any answers. If you look at them, mm. they're nearly all questions. It's, yeah. They're observations. The hard rain is going to fall. They're rhetorical. They're rhetorical questions. You know, the terrible, um, you know, aristocrat beats up the girl at, uh, at, 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 at the, um, the, the, the Baltimore Hotel Society gathering. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, obviously he makes his observations about it and he tells you how he thinks you should feel and he socially, he's, sorry, emotionally engineers his songs. But he doesn't really have any answers. And I, I, I think part of the reason, I'm sure, that he went into writing these great mysteries, like Mr Tambourine Man, was this, it was that he got into it into, for purposes of artistic expression, you know. And, uh, Mr Tambourine yeah. Man is just this great genius thing where he's, he's at the, if I remember rightly, he writes the song, doesn't he, in New Orleans with his friend Bruce uh, Langhorn, is it? Yeah, the, yeah, the bass player, yeah, yeah, yeah. The bass player, you're right. And they're going down to um, New Orleans and he's just fired up with this poem yeah. and that uh, Rambo has said... Uh, you know, that liberation, freedom is everything. And Rambo's pointed out that nothing is free. The birds, even the birds, are chained, chained to, the, to sky. the sky. That's right. Is and that a Rambo line? Yeah, Rambo, yeah. And he, so he finds the, 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 the poem I talked about earlier, the Batuiva, and he says he's going to take that. And, he, and there's, he, in fact, it appears in his own thing, the magic swirling ships, in fact, stolen yeah. from, once again, from mm -hmm. the thing. And I think it's just so marvellous, you know. And, and they go to the carnival, lit up with weed and sort of cheap white wine, and <laughs> Langhorn is bashing a huge Turkish 
tambourine. And he writes the song based around that. And the whole point of the song is this sort of mental and emotional escape. It's, I, I really think it's genius. You know, yeah. How old was he? I mean, he would have been 21. Uh, 21, 22. 21, yeah. 22 years old. When I was 22, I was still sitting in a yeah. field drinking cider listening to Mr. <laughs> Tambourine Man. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That doesn't sound good, does it, Dave? Yeah. Right? Who wins yeah. out of that? No, my, my, that my, I think my, my pet misconception that people have about Bob Dylan, I, was, I never argue with about pop music with people other than yourself. <laughs> yeah. um, but one of the things that will get me almost into fist-fighting mode at dinner parties is if anybody says Bob Dylan can't sing. Absolutely. Oh, but yeah. that, he's a, he's, he's no, a brilliant singer. He's a brilliant singer. Oh, yeah. you know, it doesn't mean yeah. you can't sing. It means you're tin-eared. Yeah. And you're not yeah, listening exactly. for what singing is. Yeah. Yeah. He's got an odd voice. I agree. It's, it's a raw voice, although he can change it massively. Yeah. But in terms of inhabiting and, and animating and making sense of a song and not just his own songs, anybody's. Yeah. He's Sinatra standard. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, th- I think one of the, uh, you know, as, as a kind of a footnote to that, you could have a, you know, one of the great misconceptions about him is that he's a folk singer. He's not, he's a blues singer. Yeah. Yep. All, all his uh, inflections and so on, they're from the blues. Yeah. But, well, you know, that's another aspect about him that's so fascinating. I think on the musical front, which people very rarely talk about, because there's a thing on the George Martin documentary the other day where you make those, those very crude uh, generalisations, but he says John Lennon was obsessed with lyrics, Paul McCartney's obsessed with music. And those things are right, and it's mm. true with Dylan, that obviously the lyric was the most important thing. But on the musical front, every aspect of purely American music, folk music, blues music... Jump jazz music, swing music. There were even ballads. I mean, they didn't write them like um, Tomorrow Night. Do you remember Tomorrow Night on yeah. Good As I've Been To You? It's not actually his song. But those things are 1940s kind of brill-building, uh, big matinee ballads. You know, there's no aspect of American music that guy hasn't gone over uh, ev- evolved or reinterpreted. Uh, I think that's absolutely, an absolutely yeah. fascinating. You never see credit for that. Yeah. The whole of Love and Theft is, is like a tour through the various blues stylings Incredible. of the, and, of and, the American. And but he never sounds as if he's doing an impression of it. No, no, absolutely. No, all... no, and he sings all of them perfectly, and he's, the way he can sing uh, in front of and behind the beat, um, mm. the way he just puts different rhythms into the, into the words is absolutely Masterful. Never gets any credit for this stuff. It's so, like Hoagie Carmichael, in, in a way. Yes, yeah, yeah, more in common of those kind of singers. Than Plus, the, the those Woody songs are also. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, those records, the great last three, you know, the, a lot of them are, are wonderful um, uh, kind of evocations of the 1920s America, of yeah. Scott Fitzgerald and the Great South and the big wheels of the steamboats turning, you know, in the same way as Blind Willie McTell was, you know, looking yeah. back to the age of slavery and the, the, the yeah. sweet magnolias blooming and the chain gangs and the, and, the, and, the, and the culture clash, the class clash in that between the aristocratic squire with the bootleg whiskey, you know, and the chain gangs and the whips, you know. This is some of the, this is the greatest. Well, this is very, every he, aspect. Talk, either in Chronicles, I can't remember, or No Direction Home, he talks about this business of, of going back and looking at kind of old newspapers and so forth, looking at historical, huge historical yeah. events, and trying to bring that stuff to bear on what he calls powerful new reality. That's right. He, which he, I think he, is a really well, good point. So he kind of links the 19th century and the 21st. You know, the, 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 he's got a head full of stuff that's happened in the past. Yeah, you know. he became an authority on the Civil War. Yes, he's, <laughs> yeah. he, he, actually, his exact words in Chronicles, I think, it said, uh, said something like, uh, the sinking of the Titanic, things like this became hot topics for me. Because, <laughs> you know, I love that idea. It's all part of his wonderful, you know, so, revision of... So, Fraser, you're not convinced, are you? You're no. a Bob Dylan agnostic. Well, I've, I've tried with Dylan. I have probably more albums by him than any other artist I don't like. <laughs> 
Um, and if you had to identify what you don't like, what would it be? I don't know. I love Desire. I absolutely adore the album Desire, but there's never been another Dylan album that I can listen to one side of mm. without getting frustrated. Uh, okay. Take so, well, we're, we're mm. going to tr- attempt to prescribe a, 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 a you know medication for this condition, aren't we? If you had to re- recommend to Fraser that he go and listen to one Bob Dylan record, what would it be? Mark. Oh, right. Do you, do you mean an obvious one or, well, or no, a less obvious Anything one. you want. You well, don't have to have obvious The obvious one is Blonde on Blonde. OK. I, well, that, I'd say that was the obvious one, too. You know, John Wesley Harding is, is, is another complete masterpiece. All songs, the first three, certainly, the first side are a first side. <laughs> Bringing it all back home. Uh, yeah. Because you've got, you've got one side which has got the great, you know, it's got Mr. Tambourine Man, It's All Right, yeah. Ma, and It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. And on the other side, you've got... Subterranean. But you don't like that. These are all albums I already own. Oh, yeah, oh, and, you've got and you don't like John Wesley Harding. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. you see, my prescription would be John Wesley Harding. John Wesley Harding is the Bob Dylan record I play more than any other. Really? And I think it's because it's it's quite a modest sounding record. You know, it, 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 at the time it seemed very modest, didn't it? There were no kind of big knockout punches on John Wesley Harding. It, it, was, it was preceded by I'll Be Your Baby Tonight yeah. and it was very yeah. kind of low-key and country and so forth. And, and no, nobody was raving about it at the time, but I think it's his, its low-key nature that's made it endure so long in my affections that I play it so often. Mm. And every time I listen to it, I hear something completely different. Yeah, it's it. very the lean that, record. And it's, it? it's at the time, I remember uh, noticing this, it's the quietest record yes. ever made. You literally, if you're playing any other records and you put John Mazziardin on, you have to turn up your amplifier. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird, because it's not a very long album uh, at all. No, the I other thing is utterly absorbing. And the, lyrically, it's, it's incredibly connected. The first three songs, this is a boring point, I know, but, no, it's not. It, but the, the, <laughs> I think each of those songs is only three verses and each verse is only four lines. And so in after the great rambling masterpieces that preceded it, yeah. Uh, of blonde on blonde. In. He's coming yeah. to see. I remember he played the Shepherd's Bush Empire in um, whenever it would be. I suppose sometime in the nineties, which is my local. We went to see him and uh, took a pair of binoculars, and it, that was the point where he started to put his pedal steel guitar in front of him, in front of the right. keyboard, onto which, of course, he never he never played it, but he never put on a sheet of A4 with the lyrics on. So when he leans down, and anybody who's seen him recently will know this, that he stands up to play this keyboard, but mm-hmm. he leans down to sing. And as he leans down, of course, it brings him nearer. Crucially, the sheet of A4 with all the words on yeah. it. <laughs> and with my, with too, my binoculars. You think he's too vain to wear specs? I think he probably is, but with my binoculars, I would look at this thing and I'd go, um, OK, three verses, four lines each. Must be, must be something off John Wesley Harding. And it would be. He played three songs off that and yeah. I was right each time. So won quite a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, the story about John Wesley Harding is that uh, he went down and recorded, and there were the basic tracks... And he was going to overdub some stuff on it, and he took it back to Woodstock, and he played it to friends, and, and he played to Robbie Robertson, said, oh, you know, I don't know what to put on it, you know. What? <laughs> he said, leave Robbie it alone. Robbie said, leave it like that. Yeah, That's bloody great. right. I never knew that. Well, bloody right. Good decision. Yeah. Absolutely. He could have had uh, like three orchestra. sessions, wasn't it, or yeah. something like that. Could have had yeah. strings and gospel singers. Well, well he probably imagine... thought at the time, this is quite modest, but Robbie yeah. Robertson obviously said the modesty is a good, is a good yeah. thing about it. I only found out yesterday that uh, Nashville Skyline, the original acetate, only had Nine songs on it, with a running with a running time of sort of less than twenty five minutes. Yeah. It was only oh, when they yeah. thought oh, it's, it's 
not very good value for money. They stuck the Johnny Cash track. On. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That was, again, done as an afterthought. Extraordinary. Uh, so, looking into the future, uh, Bob Dylan is 70 on, uh, on Tuesday, I think. Twenty-fourth, uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, there'll be candles. Is there the any? There'll be candles. <laughs> yeah, my wife started her celebrations already. Yes. <laughs> Wife's a bit cake, worried about. Cake. I have to rush home. But make sure there haven't been any visitors. <laughs> oh, hello. Yes. <laughs> what, you what, live here, all oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything you'd like to see him do that he hasn't done already? He's written a book. He's been in movies. He's recorded music of all different kinds. He painted some extreme painters. So yes, good. very successful. Yeah. Great poetry. Is there anything you'd like to see him do that he hasn't done already? Do you mean like juggling mm. or something? <laughs> <laughs> he probably has done juggling. <laughs> he's been boxing, yeah. hasn't he? He, he had, has. a, had a boxing phase. Yeah. Didn't? We've learnt he's welding. You know, he is welding. Anything Gosh. else? Origami. Everyone needs interest, no. don't they? Uh, I want to say. Well, I'm going to. I'll go throw it in because I've prepared an answer to go my on. own question. Go on. I want to see on HBO. I want to see Bob Dylan's top military leaders. Because when he <laughs> when he was about 15, he wanted to go to West Point, didn't he? Of course. Yes. He's always had a fascination with the military. Yeah. Even though having no actual direct experience of it at all. Brilliant. So he simultaneously wanted to be well, the richest to go band to and go to West Point. He yeah. said, I want to go to West Point. But I realised that that was something people like me couldn't do, couldn't do yeah. at all. And he's always had this fascination with like Sherman and Patton and all these kind of people. And uh, I'd love to know what his take was Something's on those really. people. Well, Alexander the Grief. Yes, whatever. <laughs> he can yeah. remember so Attila the Hun. That's an idea I'll, <laughs> give, I'll give to HBO for nothing. <laughs> yeah, Bob Dylan's top Bob military leader. <laughs> Wearing a different comedy hat each time. Yeah. That's right. And he could do those little kind of like annotate, you know, the theme time radio hour annotations about yeah. you know, Attila yeah. the Hun. He, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he went a bundle of fun. His wife didn't like his going out on campaign. Andy, let's finish. Bob Dylan anecdote. What's your favourite? Well, there's one I, I uh, read uh, recently. It's not specifically about him, but it's, it's to do with uh, when uh, the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech, at which Bob was stood just a few feet from yes, Dr King, so because he'd just sung. And uh, apparently standing next to him was Hugh Romney, who later became famous as Mr Wavy Gravy, who was in uh, Woodstock, you may remember. Oh, he's the guy that the goes, the what we have in mind is breakfast in bed for that's 250 true, That's the guy. Yeah. And okay. was Hugh, Hugh Romney, he was sort of like a beatnik hipster comedian of, of, the, of the time. And he was uh, standing next to Bob uh, as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. started his fa- this absolute epochal speech. And he leaned over to Bob and said, said Oh, I hope he's not on long. Paleo <laughs> Jackson's on next. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it, mate. No one's listening. Get the music. I'll tell you the interesting thing about Bob Dylan that John Baldy used to say all the time. He never turns down, which is very, it's a very funny thing when you consider his image as an iconoclast and so forth. He never turns down an honour. John always used to say this, and it's true. Bob Dylan, Légion d'honneur? Or, is it, or what did he get him from the French government? He got something. The commander of arts and letters or whatever. Yeah. The highest kind of artistic honour that the French government bestow. Polar Music Prize in Sweden. He turned up for that. Did he? He turned up and sang in front of the Pope, didn't he? Well, a couple, couple of years not, ago. Not he turned up at the White House not long ago, didn't he? He, he won the John F. Kennedy thing. Yeah. He likes the idea. And I don't know whether he did it for his mother, who only died quite recently, didn't she? She was she lived a long time, BC. Do you think he's um, got what the Australians call a brag wall? 
If you go round to Chateau Bob, I thought it was a interesting. Whole load of certificates. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. <laughs> Swimming certificates. Jim Carner. Spokesman for a generation is all very well, but plus. I'd like you yeah. know the John F. Kennedy under fourteen hurdles. Yeah, I, I just thought it was very interesting thing about it. Well, I well, they do say he takes his Oscar on tour with him, and it sits on top of his amplifier. Really? Apparently um, so. This, this is what I, what I read. Stops his amplifier from blowing what, away. What you read in The Independent, and it's about Andy Gill. Can we come up with a, a on a forum? We can get him on a podcast. Yes, Bob, if you're available. Well, well, anytime oh, why don't free. we just invent an award that we can give him? Because you say he always accepts awards. Yes. Some word podcast award, and he'll be there to, to accept it. Well, let's see if, if he doesn't, then I can, Andy and I can do the whole thing, <laughs> pretend to be him. He wouldn't know. Would you? If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.